We're in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 7. I was having a discussion with Scott Peterson this week, which is always interesting. I love talking to Scott. And we were talking about the challenge uh, each year of um, finding new insights into texts that are so familiar. And we've talked about this a couple times in the last month, this resurrection passage. This is not a, a story it's a narrative. It's a historical narrative verified by all four writers of the gospel that Jesus Christ on the third day rose again. So how do you, uh, when we hear that every year, we gather together every year, how do, you, how do you bring new insight into that? How do you find new insight in the text? The wonder of Scripture is that every time we come to it, there's fresh insight. And the Holy Spirit has really been challenging me and encouraging me this week. He's been such a, such a great teacher, as he always is, to, to gain some fresh perspective that I've never seen before. And this morning, we're going to see the resurrection from a different angle. And as I've been praying and studying and thinking through this, uh, I really came to the, to the very strong belief that what we're going to study today and what we're going to learn and talk about today is specifically for some people in this room. I mean, the overall concept, of course, everything, we're always uh, being taught by the Word. All Scripture is profitable for our instruction and correction and training righteousness. But, but this Word this morning that I pray the Holy Spirit will give and I will get out of the way is specifically for some people in this room. And I pray that your hearts will be open to it. I pray that all of our hearts, my own heart, will be open to it. That God will speak to us this morning and challenge us and strengthen us and encourage us and change some lives. Okay, so let's ask him to do that. Lord, we pray now by your spirit that you would teach us. Lord, I pray that these would not be my words, that I would not be in the equation at this point, that it would be your spirit that speaks to every single one of us, myself included. Father, we pray that our hearts would be opened, that, that, that our minds would be ready to receive this word that you're going to give us and that we would recognize that it's only because of Jesus' resurrection that we get to do this. We thank you and praise you again, and we will for all eternity for what you have done for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this week, I was having one of those days where I was kind of hard on myself. And I was, I was frankly a little irritated with myself because I was going through the list of all the things that I needed to do, to do all the things that were important, and I realized that I had not accomplished some of them. And I was really pretty frustrated with myself. I don't know if you ever talk to yourself. I talk to myself. I hope you won't think less of me because I do. But as I was thinking about it, I said to no one in particular, just into the open air, I said, I hate living life full of regrets. And in that moment, in that, in that immediate instant, the Holy Spirit said, that's connected to the resurrection. I never thought about it before. I never, never seen that uh, angle, for lack of a better word, on, on how that relates to the resurrection account. But when we come to this text in Mark chapter 16, there's so much here about regret and about regret being overcome. I don't think there's anything more emotionally debilitating in life than regret. All of us have significant regrets from our lives, things that we wish we had done differently, uh, choices we wish we had made or, or not made, relationships we, we wish we had not gotten involved in or that we wish had, had gone farther along, trust that we regret having in somebody who hurt us and let us down, 
On and on it goes. I, I, I guarantee you that if we sat down and each had a piece of paper, we could make a long list. And what that does is it weighs on us emotionally and physically and spiritually. See, emotionally it weighs on us because it silently and, and subtly torments us. And we may have deep-seated resentment toward ourselves or toward somebody else that hurt us and and did wrong by us. And we look back and we say, I wish that hadn't happened and I wish that person hadn't done that. And, And we may actually even be withholding forgiveness from somebody because we're so ticked off and we're so full of resentment and we can't get past what we did. And emotionally, we're in bondage. And when we get emotionally in bondage, that affects us physically. We may be constantly despondent. Maybe you're constantly walking around in a state of, of kind of discouragement because you've been hurt or, or because you can't let go of, of what happened. We, we may eat poorly. We may not start taking care of ourselves because we think, what's the point? That person didn't think highly of me, and, and, and I don't really think highly of myself. And, and we get very hard on ourselves, and we start to think, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to sabotage myself physically. See, our emotions and our physiology are, are interconnected. That's why people, and I'm not guilty of this at all, that's why people emotionally eat, right? When you get stressed, I need some chips. And if there were brownies here, I would eat a whole plate of brownies right now. In fact, if you put a plate of brownies in front of me right now, I'd eat them. Just, I love brownies. So we get stressed, and, and it's funny. You can almost watch people. They get stressed. The first thing you do is go to the cabinet. I do that. Or... Even more extremely, we abuse alcohol or we abuse drugs or or we don't take care of ourselves because we're despondent and the emotions affect the physiology. That's also why studies show that patients in hospitals that have faith in Christ or that have hope heal a lot faster than those who don't. Because the emotions and the physiology are connected and then when the emotions and the physiology get connected, now that regret starts to affect us spiritually. And the enemy uses regret to attack us in two significant ways. His first goal is to breed discontentment in our heart and mind. How does he do that? He mixes regret with anger and hostility and lack of forgiveness. And that starts to rob our joy and rob our peace and rob our contentment. See, the enemy is a very crafty liar. He almost always promises that what he's offering will bring us happiness. But here's the lie of the enemy. What he promises never brings lasting fulfillment and contentment. Never. And he doesn't tell us that. He doesn't tell us that at the end of the road of living for ourselves, at the end of road for sin, it will just be personal and spiritual disillusionment. See, the devil never tells you the end game. He never tells you what's going to happen. He only sells you on the fraudulent promises of the present. He only says, this is what's good now. Experiencing now. Live in it now. Find your happiness now. Don't worry about the end. Don't, don't just ignore the man behind the curtain. It's a destructive outcome, but you don't need to know about that. Live for the moment. So there's emotional bondage. There's physical bondage. And then there becomes spiritual bondage. So he breeds that discontentment. And then as he breeds discontentment, the second goal that he has is to weaken our faith. So instead of praying, instead of seeking the word, instead of worshiping God like we just did, instead of getting in the presence of the Lord and getting in the presence of God's people and being content in the Lord's will and the Lord's leading, we start to feel resentment toward the Lord. And this is marked by questions that sound something like this. Why didn't you act, Lord? Why aren't you acting now? 
Why didn't you protect me more? Why did you allow me to go through that situation? Why are you allowing me to be in this situation right now? Why didn't you lead me to a different choice? Why, why, why didn't you do something that would have made me happier? Of course, we never bother to take responsibility for our sinful choices and our selfish decisions. We just decide to blame the Lord. And you see how that starts to build into our spirit and starts to cause us to, to not trust the Lord and not rely on the Lord, but instead to just have that be undercut. See, that question, why, is always an indication that we're not seeing things through the Lord's eyes. When you see through God's eyes, when you have the perspective of heaven, you don't ask why, because you trust that God's got it covered. And that's hard for us as, as human beings, because we always want to know why, and we always want to have ourselves satisfied, but we have a limited faith, and when we have a limited faith and we're living for ourselves, then we start to ask those questions. So much of the problem is that we didn't seek the Lord or that, or that we didn't live for the Lord in that moment. And we may still be filtering life right now, maybe even this morning, through that perspective rather than a, through, a, through a spiritually surrendered spirit. You may be sitting there this morning and you may be saying, I'm here, but I resent the Lord. I'm frustrated with God. I, I think God should have done more in my life. I, I think God should have taken care of me and provided for me. Let me tell you this morning, not in any way flippantly, look at the empty tomb and you'll know that God's provided. There is no more evidence that you and I need that God is loving and gracious and faithful and willing to save and willing to provide than the fact that the tomb this morning is empty. Not one person on the face of the earth has ever been able to produce the body of Jesus Christ because it's not there. He's alive, sitting on the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Even right now, Jesus is making intercession for us because he knows maybe you're away from him or you've rejected him or you've never trusted in him. And right now, he's making intercession for you. Now, as we come to the text, I know it's a long introduction, but that's about half the message. As you come to the text in, in Mark chapter 16, you see that, that the disciples probably had some thoughts. I, I've been real intrigued this week by what happened, what they were feeling in that interval between Jesus' arrest and the women coming back from the tomb saying, the tomb's empty. And the angel told us that Jesus is alive. Now let's read, Brooke read it so nicely, but let's read three verses again, verses 5 to 7. And I want to focus in on one phrase that fits in with this theme. Start in verse 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. In other words, why are you surprised by the fact that the tomb's empty? You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who's been crucified. Again, confirming the fact that Jesus died, took our sins upon himself. But look at the next phrase, the three greatest words in recorded history. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Now focus on verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, nothing in Scripture is accidental. 
No word in Scripture is put there without thought. So the fact that the angel singles out Peter should grab our attention because there's a reason why out of the 12, he's the only one named. That would have been a really rough three days for Peter. Peter had not had a good week. We thought we had a bad week. Peter had a seriously bad week. He had made some glaring mistakes that were publicly on display, and he had done it in in the most spectacular way of failing possible. But here's the thing I love about Peter. It's easy to give him a bum rap for denying Christ, and certainly that was beyond awful. But Jesus had prophesied it, and I think that was the defining moment, the turning point in Peter's life where he really realized how much he loved the Lord. But in isolating Peter, I think what we do is we miss the fact that the other disciples ran away. And that not one of them, even John, fought back the way that Peter did. He had reacted strongly when, Peter said, when Jesus said, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die. He said, no, Lord, I'm going to go to the cross with you. There's no way you're going to die without me. When Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times, no way I'm going to deny you. It's not going to happen. When the soldiers come in the garden to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword, starts fighting, cuts off Malchus's ear. He says, you're not taking Jesus without a fight. And then when they do arrest him and the other disciples run, Peter follows from a distance to see what would happen. So he was there. We can say a lot about Peter, but he was loyal. Where were the others? What were they doing? And more importantly, what were they thinking that weekend? It was about 60 hours from the Passover meal to the resurrection. And in those 60 hours, I got to believe, there was just moment after moment of regret. All the internal thoughts, all the internal arguments that were in their mind, all the anguish that was going on. Don't you know that there had to be so many things churning and swirling in their hearts and mind? They're unsettled, they're frustrated, they're angry, they're they're regretful, they're, they're tormented by their grief. Jesus is gone, we didn't defend him, we didn't do anything. And, and, and no matter how much they could rationalize it, no matter how much they could justify it, no matter how much we justify it in life, selfishness and sin always brings regret. There is never any joy in regret. That's how we know it's not of the Lord. Because there's no joy. And I tried to think about some of the questions, and maybe you want to write these down, some of the questions and some of the issues that the disciples were remembering and, and, and going over again and again as they thought with, with just huge remorse in those 60 hours about what they had done and how they had acted and how self-focused they had been. Listen to four questions I believe they asked. Why hadn't they understood that people were plotting to kill him? wasn't like it was a state secret. The Pharisees and scribes had openly opposed Jesus every step of the way. At one point, they'd even tried to stone him. So it wasn't like Jesus was, was uh, popular with everybody and that everybody accepted him and that this just blindsided him. Uh, them. Th- this was obvious. In fact, you look at the at, uh, start of Matthew 26, it says the religious leaders were plotting together openly to try to figure out how to attack him. So I got to think after he was arrested, why, why hadn't we seen that coming? Why, why didn't we plan better? Why didn't we protect him better? See, there's always a regret with lack of wisdom. How much of our regret this morning that you thought about when I said, think about the regrets of your life, how much of our regret was that we didn't search the word of God? 
or that we didn't seek spiritual counsel or that when we got spiritual counsel, we didn't listen to it. Why didn't we see this coming? Second, I think they asked, why didn't we hear him talk about it? Because he spoke about his death and his resurrection. He had been so clear about it. He said, one of you is going to betray me. Then he dipped the bread in the juice and he handed it to Judas. And Judas left. And they were like, oh, I wonder if he's going to take care of the money or something. He just said, one of you is going to betray me. And it's the one that I dipped the bread in. Here, Judas, here's the bread. I mean, it should have been so clear. And he had spoken to them about being betrayed. He had spoken to them about suffering. He said on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And then I, I was struck by this this week. When you look at the, at the John passage, four chapters of teaching during the meal. You know, in the other three texts, it's like they celebrated the Passover. Jesus took the bread and the cup and he gave it and they broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body and this is my blood. And we think that the, that the Passover meal was just maybe like 30 minutes or an hour. When you look at the John text, Jesus teaches four chapters of text during the meal. And he talks about what's going to happen. And he talks about the future. And he talks about what's going to happen with him. Now, now they didn't get it. In fact, they were so blinded to it, so unaware of it, that at the end of his four chapters of teaching, you know what their first argument was? I wonder which of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I wonder which of us is seen most highly by God. Jesus just said, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise again, and you guys need to understand this. But on the third day, I'm, I'm going to be back, I'm going to rise again. But, but they didn't understand it at all. See, selfishness blinds us. And we have to check that in our spirit. I think the third question is, why didn't we stand up for him when he was arrested? Why didn't we defend him? Sure, they were scared of the soldiers. Sure, they were worried about what would happen to their lives. But they didn't even defend him. They just ran away. That's the regret of missed opportunities. I would guess that when we thought about those regrets that we have in life, that a lot of them were missed opportunities. I wish I'd done that. Wish I'd taken that job. Wish I had dated that person. Wish I hadn't dated that person. Wish I had invested in that account. Wish I had had more kids. Wish I had done this. Wish I had done this. Wish I had done this. For the disciples, their regret was, I wish I had stood for the Lord. I wish in that moment when the soldiers came up and that lying little person, Judas, came up and kissed Jesus on the cheek, we should have attacked him. We should have stood for him. Instead, what did we do? We ran away and hid. And I think in those 60 hours, that was one of their biggest regrets. I think they regretted not staying awake in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, watch and pray. And instead, they fell asleep and, and they were so tired and they just laid down and Jesus woke them up and he's bleeding because he's sweating so, so profusely. His, his anguish is so strong as our sins are laid upon him and he starts to feel the weight of that, that his, his blood vessels burst open and he starts to bleed down his face and he comes to them and they're asleep and he says, wake up, you need to watch and pray. And they see his face and it's already starting to bleed. And they say, okay, Jesus. And then they fall back asleep. The regret of prayerlessness how many opportunities for wisdom and understanding did we miss out on because we tried to seek control on our own rather than calling on the Lord and saying, God, please help me. 
please help me. Please show me the way. Please lead me. Please change me. Please do something. But I need your help. I have nothing. But here's the greatest regret, and I really want you to get this. The greatest regret was with the, is that they didn't believe. They say, well, come on, Paul, this is the disciples. They were with him for three years. Of course they believed. They, they trusted him with their lives. But look at what happens. Look over at verse uh, 14. After he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, look at the next line in verse 14, Mark 16. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. They're hiding in the upper room. The 60 hours is done. The women go to the tomb, sadly, with their spices, hoping that somehow the Romans will open up the tomb and let them go in so they can embalm the body and, and see Jesus one more time because their Savior's dead. The women are there. They're faithful. And they show up at the tomb, and the stone is rolled away. And, and there's an angel sitting there, and the grave clothes are folded and laid out. And he says, I don't know why you're surprised by this. He told you it was going to happen. He's alive. You're looking for somebody who you think is dead. You saw him crucified, and you know he died. He took your sins upon himself. But let me tell you this morning, he's not dead anymore. He's alive. Now, go tell the disciples and Peter. We'll get to that in a minute. The women come running back, and they say, the tomb's empty. We saw an angel. Jesus is alive. And it says the disciples thought they were saying nonsense, and they refused to believe. The ones closest to Jesus. Oh, come on. You women are crazy. Are you delusional? Come on, don't, don't do that to us. Come on. Something happened. The Romans took him. They're trying to pin it on us. Jesus isn't alive. And Peter and John, only two of them, go running to the tomb. Peter's like me. He's a little heavier. So John beats him to the tomb. But John, when he gets there, just stands outside. Peter barges right in. I love Peter. And he looks in there, and it's empty. They didn't believe. They didn't believe until Jesus shows up. And verse 14 says, here you go. Touch my hands. Put your finger in my side. I'm alive. And then interestingly, he says, you didn't believe me. You didn't believe me. See, they had all the proof, all the evidence that he was the Son of God. The miracles had proven it. They had his teaching. But instead, listen now, this is very crucially important for some of us. Instead of trusting him fully, instead of yielding their lives completely, they did not hear him. They ran. They abandoned him. And they didn't believe he would rise again. And even when their friends came and said, Jesus is alive, an angel told us. They said, we will not believe it. Maybe that describes you this morning. You've heard the truth. You know you need him, especially when you look at your life, because when you look at your life, it's a trail of self-sufficiency, and choices have not brought you any personal or spiritual fulfillment. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no contentment. When you look at your life, I'm not being mean here. I'm just stating truth. When you look at your life, it is a life of regret. And let me tell you this morning, you need a Savior. 
You need a savior. You need someone to rescue you from sin and self. Someone who loves you so much that he was willing to take your sin and my sin and go to the cross and hold them and die for them and sacrifice for them so that you and I can be free because he's alive this morning. Jesus Christ is the only savior. He's the only one who can offer salvation and forgiveness because he has total victory over sin and death. Death could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. The stone was rolled away and he walked out alive and 12 different times over 500 people saw him and verified he's alive. And this morning, you need him. Because in that moment when the grave opened and Jesus walked out, everything changed. Now, go back to the text one more time. Let's draw it to conclusion. The angel says to them in verse 7, Go, tell the disciples, tell me the next two words, and Peter, why? Go tell the disciples, and Peter. Wait a second. There were 11 of them. Peter was the one who had followed him. Peter was the only one who who ran into the empty tomb. If anybody should have been affirmed, it was Peter. But he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Why? Because they needed to know that the resurrection is real and that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And because of that, our lives can be transformed from sin and shame and regret and from eternal lack of hope to victory and hope and joy and eternal life. And Peter was the living embodiment of that. The resurrection changed everything. The grace of God is poured out and it's complete. And because Jesus is alive, listen now, our sins are defeated. Our sins can be washed away. And now we can have a new life and a new spirit and new opportunities. It is nothing we deserve. It is totally the victory of Jesus, his spirit, his life, his leading, and his provision. That's why to be saved, we have to renounce our sin. We have to renounce our old life. We have to say, I don't want this anymore. I repent of it. Jesus, save me. Jesus, deliver me. And God, when we do that, it says that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you need to do that this morning. I did it in 1974. Walked right down the aisle. My father was preaching. I was crying. I was 10 years old. I walked down the aisle and I said, I need to give my life to Jesus Christ. And from that moment, my life has changed forever. No going back. God, even in my naivete and a little bit of my lack of understanding of all of what it meant, but I knew I needed a Savior. And God, in that moment, looked at Paul Rhodes' life and he said, all your sin is is forgiven. All your sin is exonerated. All your sin is erased. It's as far as east as west, and I will remember it no more. Because you're washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you're saved forever. Listen, this is not just, oh, I believe in Jesus, and I go to church. This is a full-time commitment. This is everything in your life surrendered to Christ. And when you surrender everything in your life to Christ, he transforms you and changes you. You can't do it half-heartedly. This can't be, well, I'll try it out and I'll test it out and I'll give Jesus this part of my life, but he can't have that part of my life. No, it has to be a full 
full-blown surrender to him. And when you trust him that way, he will save you and change you forever. The fact that the tomb's empty this morning tells you about his power to save. And that power of his salvation is enough to free you from your regret. Your spiritual regret and your personal regret. Spiritually, the Bible says that whosoever believes in him will be saved. Whosoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever trusts Jesus Christ to save them and remove their sin needs to understand that the Lord is absolutely willing, ready, and able to forgive your sin and to forgive your rebellion and to forgive your resistance and to forgive your living for yourself. And he is able to change you through Christ. And in a moment, all that regret, all that, well, I've lived too bad a life. There's too much, Paul. You don't know the extent of my sin. Listen, I don't care about the extent of your sin because we're all full of sin. And one sin's enough. So this is not a contest. You have 20,000, I have 10,000. Who cares? One's enough. But in that moment when you trust Christ, God is able to remove all of it and wash you clean. And when he does that, personally, the regret of your past life and your selfishness and your sin and all those decisions and hurts and pains and resentment, listen, that can all be relieved. How do I know that? I know that because in verse 7, it says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter denied him. When people said, hey, weren't you with him? Peter swore. No way, I won't swear. But he swore. And Jesus is standing right there. And, and Peter had already denied him once. And already denied him twice. And Jesus said, there are going to be three times. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, no way I'm going to do that, Jesus. Not on your life. Little did he know. First time, no, I don't know him. Second time, stop talking to me, I don't know him. The third time, hey, you're with him. Peter swears and says, I am not with him. Jesus, standing right there, turns and looks at him. And it says, Peter ran away and wept bitterly. You talk about regret. You talk about the things you've done in your life that you say, oh, Paul, I hope you never find out some of the things I've done. That's the very regret that God can remove from your life. Peter's a living example because in John chapter 21, they meet on the shore of Galilee, and Jesus comes to him and says, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Three times. Get it? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Then through you, I'm going to build my church. Talk about a turnaround, right? In a couple days, you go from denying Jesus and swearing that you don't know him to Jesus saying, I'm going to build my church on you. That's what God does. That's the grace of God. And the resurrection is what makes that possible. Let's finish with this. You've listened so nicely. The resurrection is what proves. The resurrection is what proves that Jesus is the only Savior and the resurrection is what proves that he has the grace and power to transform us forever. When we trust in Jesus Christ, when we surrender our lives to him, it creates four unmistakable qualities. Hear that word. Four unmistakable qualities in our lives that prove to us and prove to everyone else that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives. 
Without Christ, you will never have these four things. Without Christ, it is impossible for you to have these four things. But with Christ, not only will you have them, but you will have strength and security and victory. Number one, the resurrection gives us a humble sorrow and brokenness over sin. What strikes me about the world this morning, when I look at the news and I look at culture, and I'm a student of that, I I like the sociology aspect of the world. What has struck me so much about our culture right now is there is zero shame about sin. Zero. Even among believers. Even among people say, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet their lifestyle shows absolutely no shame over sin. But our culture is so far down the path that now we are told that we should be ashamed to say anything about sin. Now there are lawsuits and indictments and arrests when somebody bothers to say, hey, I stand for the word of God. Nope, we can't have that. We can't have that. Because there's no shame about sin. But listen, once we know what God has done, and once we gratefully receive his gift of forgiveness and salvation and transformation, here's what happened. We will never be calloused, and we will never be indifferent about sin again. We will only be broken by it. Oh God, break us more every day about sin. Don't ever let us get calloused about sin. The moment I get calloused about committing an offense against God is the moment I'm in serious trouble. God always provides a way of escape when there's temptation. He always says, here's the way out. But there are going to be times, because we're human, where we yield. When we yield, don't say, oh, well, I'll, 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 I'll confess that later on tonight. When I, when I lay down and pray at night, I'll, I'll spend a couple minutes and say, Lord, I'm really sorry for my day. No, the moment you sin, get on your knees and say, God, I'm so sorry. Please break me of that. Don't ever let me do that again. Search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Remove it all because I want to be broken about sin. That's what the resurrection does. The resurrection breaks you about sin. Second thing the resurrection does is it creates a stubborn refusal to give sin a place in your lives. As we said Thursday night, we've been freed from bondage. And the death sentence that we deserve has been removed forever. And once we experience that deliverance from that penalty, we never want to go back to jail. We never even want to have the cuffs on our wrists anymore. If somebody takes your place, if somebody fulfills the death sentence and is executed for you, I said Thursday night, you're not going to go back out and commit the same crime that got you there in the first place. You are going to be so joyful and so grateful. You're going to say, I am never going back there. Through Christ, we are living in the freedom of deliverance. Let's not ever go back. Don't ever put those cuffs on me again. I don't ever want to feel bondage again because I want to be stubborn and I want to refuse and I want to deny that sin's going to have any place in my life. And you know what? That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us not to have to be under that control. So sin create, uh, the resurrection creates brokenness. Resurrection creates a stubborn refusal to give sin a place in our lives. Third, would you see that the resurrection fills us with the joy of walking by faith? Now that seems like an oxymoron. The joy of walking by faith. You go, Paul, have you ever walked by faith? Because it's hard. You're right. And we want control 
And we don't like not being able to see what's going to happen. And we don't like putting our lives in God's hands and saying, all right, God, I trust you completely. You're going to bring a trial? Uh, uh, Okay, I'll I'll keep trusting. You're going to bring difficulty? Okay, I'll keep trusting. You're going to take me in that direction? I don't know now. Come on, it's starting to get a little much. Here's what the resurrection does. The resurrection gives you the joy of walking by faith because control is a fallacy. You and I have no control over our lives this morning. The people in Brussels that showed up at the train station or showed up at the airport thought they're in control. I got my ticket. I'm on the flight to New York. I'm ready to go. And in an instant, everything changed. We have no control over our lives. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. None of us is guaranteed Monday morning. God's in control. And his ways are better than our ways. And his plans far exceed anything we could ever ask or think. And we want to say, Lord, I should be in control and not you. See, the resurrection show the disciples, you don't get it. Let me have the power. Let me have the control. And I'll give you confidence and endurance and power. You look at the disciples after Acts 2, they look nothing like this. They're bold and powerful and strong, and they say, try to stop us. We're full of the Spirit, and we're ready to change the world. And Peter, oh, Peter, when he was killed and they wanted to crucify him, Peter says, "Uh uh-uh, you crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. Faith, the resurrection gives us faith. Last, the resurrection gives us victory in every single aspect of our lives. Please hear this last thought. The resurrection gives us victory in every single aspect of our lives. Now, let me be clear. That's not pie in the sky. You'll never have any problems. Just think happy thoughts and say happy sentences and and everything will be perfect. That is a false theology. The Bible never argues for that. It actually contradicts what Jesus said would happen when we're his disciples. Living in victory doesn't mean you'll never struggle. It doesn't mean you'll never have trials. It doesn't mean you won't have faced temptation. It doesn't mean you won't struggle in your faith. But as disciples, that should be a joy to us. Because the disciples, after they're arrested and beaten and told never to talk about Jesus, it says that they left the jail and they were full of joy that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the one who had saved them. Victory in everything means that the resurrection makes us more than conquerors through Christ. And Paul says that by knowing him, I experience the power of his resurrection. And his spirit fills me with confidence and endurance and strength. Listen, your list of regrets and my list of regrets may be 50 miles long. It doesn't have to be that way. Because in Revelation, at the end, I'm done. Jesus says, behold, I make all things, tell me the next word, new. I make all things new. Because of the power of the resurrection, there is new life. There is redeemed life available for any of us. So let me ask you, before we sing one more song and before we say good morning, do you have life through him? 
Come on, now listen. I know you're folding up your Bibles and get ready to go. Listen now. Do you have life through him? Maybe you've never trusted him before. You're deep in sin this morning. You feel hopeless. You came here kind of as a last straw. You don't know what else to do. Your life is on a downward spiral. It is not going the right way. And your life is one big list of regrets. Do you want to be free? Because Jesus Christ will make you free. He will forgive you. And he will remove the sin. And he will adopt you as his own. And he will fill you with his spirit. And he will empower you. But you have to trust him. The way you're going, what you're doing, the control you've tried to have, it doesn't work. And I want to tell you this morning, with all my heart and all the love I have, reject this life and trust in Christ. And If you want to know what that is this morning, you want to talk to somebody, I will wait as long as you need. And we will have other leaders up here after the service. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you and counsel you and tell you what that means. Don't leave today. Come on. Where, where else are you going to go? What else are you going to do today that's going to be worth this? The tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Maybe you know about God this morning. Maybe you even prayed a prayer at some point. Uh, yeah, I, I prayed a prayer when I was 12 and, and I received Christ and I'm good. But, but honestly, let me be very blunt. Nothing's ever changed. Nothing's changed. You're, you're still never turned from sin. You, you keep living for yourself and you're kind of full of regrets. And you say, well, maybe it's too late. Listen, it's never too late as long as you have breath. It is never too late as long as you have breath. But don't test God. He's long-suffering, but at some point, the question is called. Go tell Peter. Go tell Peter. Maybe that's you this morning. You need to turn away from self and surrender to him. And once you've experienced the power of the resurrection, nothing will ever be the same. If you love him, praise him. If you love him, live in victory. Don't keep walking backwards. God has given us the power of salvation. Oh, I just can't even express it with enough joy. God's given us the power of salvation to free us forever.